Well, I'm turning this morning for our teaching sermon back to that passage that we just read from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to direct your attention especially to verses 16 and 17, verses 16 and 17, where Paul writes, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And my title for this morning is The Excellency of Scripture. The Excellency of Scripture. I don't know if any of you here this morning enjoy art or going to arts galleries. I'm no connoisseur of these things in any form or shape at all but there is one particular painting that I do enjoy looking at and it's a painting that's found in the National Portrait Gallery and the title of this painting is The Secret of England's Greatness. The Secret of England's Greatness. Perhaps you know the painting. Well in this particular painting it's an imagined scene. It's set in uh, Windsor Castle And in this imagined scene, we have Queen Victoria, and she's dressed in her royal robes. You've got Prince Albert standing beside Queen Victoria, and she's receiving an ambassador from East Africa. And this ambassador is on his knees in front of Queen Victoria, and his hands are held up to her because Queen Victoria is presenting this man, this ambassador, with a beautifully bound copy of the Word of God, of the Bible. Now, this particular scene, this painting, is based on a popular anecdote when Queen Victoria was asked how Britain had become so powerful and why Britain ruled the world at that time, the British Empire. She said that that this, that our beloved Queen sent him not the number of her fleets, not the number of her armies, not the accounts of her boundless merchandise, not the details of her inexhaustible wealth, But handing him a beautifully bound copy of the Bible, she said, tell the prince that this is the secret of England's greatness. Well, it would appear that Queen Victoria understood something of the excellency of the scriptures. And someone else who understood the value of God's word was the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? Here in this passage, he describes how excellent, how wonderful how valuable the word of God, the scriptures are. Now this second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, he's seeking to encourage Timothy. He's seeking to uh, remind Timothy of the truths that he knows. He wants him to be grounded. In chapter 1 he tells him, you notice, to hold fast onto scripture. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. And then you move on into chapter 2, and then he exhorts Timothy to teach the Scriptures. Verse 2 says this, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who should be able to teach others also. Or you could go into verse 15. He tells him to study, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul tells him, look, go and teach the word of God. And then you come into chapter 3, and we find that Timothy is now being warned by Paul. 
warned that there would be false teachers. And so he tells him to continue in the scriptures. Verse 14 of what we just read, it says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. And so Paul is charging him, Paul is telling him to do these things. Hold fast to the word of God, teach the word of God. And then he tells him to continue in the word of God. And then you come to chapter 4 and then he says, preach the word of God. The last verse that we just read, chapter 4 and verse 2. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And you see how this theme is running all the way through this epistle that Paul is writing to Timothy here. He's laying down to him these things. Look, you need to, Paul, you need, Timothy, you need to hold on to the scriptures. You need to teach the scriptures. You need to continue in the scriptures. You need to preach the scriptures. And we might ask ourselves the question, well, what is so special about the scriptures? Well, here in verses 16 and 17, Paul lays down the reasons why the Bible is so special. And he begins to explain just in these few verses something of the excellency and the, the inexhaustible value of the Bible. And this morning I want to look at these verses with you. And I want us to notice three things about the scriptures from these verses this morning. And the first thing that I want you to notice here about the Bible is the authority of the scriptures, the authority of the scriptures. Paul says here at the very beginning, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And what's Paul driving at here? Well, Paul is saying that the origin of the scriptures, the the authorship of the scriptures is none other than God himself. Now here is, I think, one of the most vital and fundamental doctrines of the Bible. That God is the author of this book that we have in front of us. Now, I'm not a, a big fan of preachers going into the Greek But I think it's necessary for us here this morning just to understand a little bit of the Greek here if we're going to understand what Paul is saying to us here. Because here in this uh, verse that we have before us, all scripture is given by inspiration, we have a very interesting Greek word that Paul uses. In actual fact, that phrase, is given by inspiration of God, is just one word in the Greek. And that one Greek word consists of two Greek words that are joined together by Paul. It would appear that Paul actually makes up his own word here. Just joins two words together, two Greek words. And the the Greek word that he uses here is this word theonoustos. And the two words that Paul joins together here is the word theos, meaning gods, and the word pneuma or noustos, which means breath or spirit or to be spirated, or wind. That's how often it's translated in the Bible as wind. And so when we put these two words together, we come up with the fact that here we read that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's God's wind. It's God's exhaling. Now, we're used to that word pneuma, aren't we? We, uh, I think we do understand a little bit, don't we? We have the word pneumonia. It's an infection of the lungs, and we understand that that's where we breathe from, or you can think of the word pneumatic drill. It's the same uh, Greek word 
a drill that's run on compressed air or compressed gas. So we understand a little bit of this word here, but it's God and wind or God and breath joined together. So Paul is saying here, look, Scripture is God-breathed. It is spirated by God. It's exhaled by God. In other words, the author and the originator of this book, the Scriptures, is God himself. And so therefore we can also state the flip side to that, can't we? If God is the author, then man is not. The Bible is not the product of a few human minds. It's not the thoughts and ideas and, you know, sort of collected wisdom of ancient men. But it's the very word of God. Now Paul doesn't explain in these verses how God operates in producing the scriptures. We have other places for that you can go into Uh, Peter's writings. Paul doesn't go into the mechanics, does he, here, of how God breathed it out. But what Paul is concerned with here is the value of the Scriptures. Paul is, is asserting their divine origin and therefore their spiritual power and their spiritual authority. And to emphasize this further, you just notice what else Paul says there in that phrase. He says there, all Scripture, not part of it, Not just the ideas and the concepts of scripture, but every chapter, every verse, every word, every jot and tittle is breathed out by God. Friends, this morning, the book that you have in front of you is none other than the very words of the living God. And because God is the the creator of the ends of the earth, because he is the one who is almighty, the one who reigns and rules over the world and over us, this book has authority. Because God is pure and because God is holy, then we can say that this book in front of us is a holy book. And because God is a God of truth who cannot lie, this book that is in front of us this morning is a book of truth. Remember, Jesus asserted this, didn't he? In John chapter 17 and verse 17, he said, Thy word is truth. The psalmist in Psalm 33 gives us a wonderful expression. Psalm 33 and verse 4 says something similar. He says, for the word of the Lord is right. It's true. It's perfect. There's no mistakes in the word of God. And so what we have in front of us this morning is an infallible record of an infallible revelation. And if, therefore, the word of God is authoritative, and if it is holy, and if it is truth, shouldn't we heed it? Shouldn't we listen to it? Shouldn't we obey it? Shouldn't we read it? You know, of all the books that we read this book, all the books that we read this week, this should be the first book that we want to read and the last book that we want to read. Of all the things that take our thoughts and take priority in our lives this week, the word of God should be central. This word should have the preeminence in our lives. Our lives should be based around this book because this book comes from God's. So friends, let me ask you this morning, how much time do you spend in the word of God? How much of your day is occupied with contemplating and meditating upon scripture? God's people, you remember in the Old Testament, they were told to bind the word of God as frontlets 
before their eyes. You remember the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6, his words of Moses there, wonderful words that he gives to the children of Israel that are repeated a number of times. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 6, he says, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine hearts, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes." You know, and even in this passage that we just read, Timothy was taught the scriptures from a child. Daniel, remember, studied the word of God even when he was in captivity. The Ethiopian eunuch was reading the word of God while he was riding in his chariots. Friends, this morning, how we should treasure the word of God. It reminds me of something that I saw a few years ago. I was asked to speak at a young people's meeting in Northern Ireland. And uh, there was a group of young people there and there was leaders and there was one particular leader, I remember, a young girl, perhaps she was only about 18 or 19 years old and she was quietly helping out at this youth group on a Wednesday night, just helping in whatever way she could. Well, a few weeks later, I, I got on a train to go into Belfast and as the train pulled into the station, I could see this girl was sat next to the window and there, as she was sat next to the window, she had the Bible out on the little table there on the, on the train. And she was just quietly reading there on this busy commuter train into Belfast, just sat there with her Bible, reading the Word of God. And I thought to myself, as I, as I saw this young lady sat there with her Bible, I thought to myself, you see, that's a young person who's not only a Christian on a Sunday or a Christian on a Wednesday night at church, at the youth group, but she's a Christian at 8 o'clock on Monday morning. There's someone who loves the word of God and she's prepared to read it in front of everyone else on this packed commuter train. Friends, this morning, do we love the word of God? Do we treasure it? Because it's the very truth of God's. We've seen then the authority of the word of God, the authority of scripture. But notice secondly this morning with me the advantage of scripture. The advantage of scripture. Paul goes on to say in this verse that it's profitable. He says it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And that word profitable has this sense of being useful. It's beneficial. It has advantages to the person who reads it and meditates upon it and soaks it up. You see, the Word of God is not like one of these books of sort of little sayings. You know, you get these books of what Winnie the Pooh said or what Eeyore said, little, little snippets of sayings that sound very good but have very little bearing on your everyday lives. No, this is a book that is eminently practical and helpful. And Paul goes on to list four reasons here why the Word of God is beneficial and of advantage to us this morning. I just want to quickly go through these with you this morning. And the first reason why he says this book is profitable to us is because it's for doctrine. And that word means teaching. It means instruction. It's the imparting of truth. In Romans uh, chapter 15 and verse 4, Paul uh, said that, remember, that the things that were written in the past were written for our learning. They were written for our doctrine, for our truth. And the scriptures then are useful for telling us what is right and what is true. 
That's why Timothy is instructed back in chapter 1 to hold fast the form of sound words. And the Bible, you see, teaches us everything that we need to know, doesn't it? Everything we need to know about God, his character, his perfections, his attributes. It, it teaches us the truth about man. It teaches us about our sin and our sinful condition. And of course, thanks be to God, it also teaches us the way of salvation. It teaches us about Christ, the person of Christ, his work, and all that he came to do. See, the Bible is profitable for doctrine. And believers, let me just say this this morning. I think this is absolutely vital for us today. There's many false doctrines. There's many false teachers. That's what Paul was warning Timothy here in chapter 3 about. And therefore, we have to be on our guard, don't we? We must hold on to every teaching. And we must take the things that we hear and hold it up, as it were, to the yardstick of God's words, to the plumb line of Scripture. Remember what John said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone into the world. Remember the words of Isaiah chapter 8, similar instruction to us there. And we're to hold everything up to scripture. He says, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. You know, just like when you go to a shop and you pull out a 20-pound note and the, the lady, the cashier there will get it and maybe hold it under one of those lights to check that it's a genuine 20-pound note. So we're to take everything that we hear and we're to shine it under the light of God's truth to see if it's true. Friends, test everything with the word of God. But Paul goes on to say not only is it profitable for doctrine, but he says for reproof. And that, I, that word there brings the idea of rebuke. It's the spotting of erroneous and false teaching. These things must be exposed. Dangers must be pointed out. And the word of God, of course, highlights to us what is unholy and what's impure and what is not true. If we're honest, I think when we read the word of God at times, we can, or we hear it preached, it exposes us, doesn't it? We hear that reproof come through. Perhaps uh, as, you're, as you're reading it, a verse jumps out and hits you and it just reproves you about something that you did or you have done or you're doing. You know, when I was uh, a dairy farmer, one of my duties was to go round last thing at night around the farm and I had to go and check up on cows that were calving and so on, but also uh, just to check that there wasn't anyone down there and, and so on, and used to go and take a torch because it was dark and there was uh, things to look at and so on. And perhaps you'd hear a rustle in the straw and you would shine the torch and you would see rats running around. And of course, as you shine the light, they begin to scurry away. You know, they're like rats up a drain pipe, as it were. And that's what the Word of God does, doesn't it? It shines and it exposes the rats, as it were, in our lives, and the sin that runs amok, and it exposes these things. Because the word of God is for reproof. The writer to the Hebrews said that the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
Paul goes on and gives us a third thing here. It's profitable for correction, he says. Correction. See, the, the scripture doesn't just expose error, but it's useful for then correcting this error. The senses of uh, straightening something or placing something right again. See, the Bible not only warns us of the wrong way, but then it points us back to that straight way that we should follow, the right path that we should go along. And this, is the, this is the character of the word of God. It's restorative. It helps us to get back on the right path. Remember what the psalmist said, it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It points us in the way that we should go. And this is something that Paul has already been encouraging Timothy to do in this epistle. If you just go back into chapter 2 and look at verse 25 and 26 there. He says this, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. You see, Paul is saying to Timothy here, look, as you preach and as you teach the word, you want to be recovering those who've been lost to, to the devil, pulling them back so they may recover themselves from the devil. This is what the word of God does. It restores us. Praise God. In those times when we backslide, the word of God comes and it draws us back. God uses the word of God to pull us back into closer fellowship with himself. But the fourth thing that uh, Paul says here is that it's profitable for instruction in righteousness. And the idea here is of training and discipline. It's the same word that's used to describe a child who's being lovingly reared and guided by his parents. Such rearing involves careful instruction, doesn't it? It also will involve chastisement and punishment for the child. Or, of course, we could liken it to a soldier. The life of a, a soldier being trained and instructed. He has to be disciplined. He has to, his life has to follow certain rules, doesn't it? He has to dress in a particular way. He has to get up at a certain time. He has to make his bed in a certain way and so on. He has tasks and duties to perform. He can't afford to be slack and lazy, can he? And as believers, we have the word of God to teach us and train us. And it trains us in righteousness, in the right way that we should go. It's a manual, you see, how we may live for the glory of God. The Bible answers all our questions, doesn't it, on how we may do this in every situation of life. You know, we could ask the question, how am I to live as a Christian husband? Or how am I to live as a Christian father or mother? How should I behave towards my seniors? What should my attitude be like at work on a Monday morning? What should I think when I hear about things on the news, about identity politics? How am I to respond when people are talking about Black Lives Matters and so on? How should I react to the news about COVID-19? All of these things, all these relevant things, the scriptures lay down the principles. It lays down how we are to respond to these things. And it tells us how we may live a life of praise as we respond to these things and react to these things. And so friends, let me ask you the question, do you use the word of God? It's like a series of tools, isn't it, that we may use for different parts of our lives. Does it shape our thinking? Does it govern our principles? 
Do we use it to check our behaviour? When you're about to do something, do you say, what does the word of God teach on this thing? See, the word of God should guide every aspect of our lives, our daily patterns, the way we think, the way we move, everything about us. And so Paul says here, look, the word of God is profitable. It's profitable, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Here are the great advantages of Scripture. And so we've seen then this authority of Scripture and the advantages of Scripture, but just notice lastly with me the accomplishment of Scripture. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 17. What's the purpose for all of this? Well, he says that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. What does it accomplish in our lives? Well, so he says, that, he says here, so the believer may be perfect. Now, we have to realize here that the word that Paul uses, perfect here, he doesn't mean in the sense of never, ever sinning again. He doesn't mean a sinlessness, you know, a sinless perfection. That's not what he means. The word means to be proficient. It means to be complete or whole or, or fit, like an employee who you know, has been trained and is now qualified to do a particular task. And the believer who reads God's word and heeds God's word and, and obeys God's word is perfect. He is complete. He's fitted. Fitted for the task of living to the glory of God. And he's also truly furnished, it says here. And that has a very similar sense to the previous word. It, has to, it means this idea of being equipped, being prepared. Like the scouts, you know, be prepared is the scouts' motto. That's what it means. The word of God prepares you. It equips you. Go back to the illustration of a soldier. The soldier gets kitted out, doesn't he, with all the things that he needs. He has to have all his equipment. He has his basic clothing. He has his body armor and so on. He has his helmet. He has his personal radio and so on. He has to have all these things, his food, his water, his ammunition, everything he needs for combat so that he is equipped. And the Bible equips the believer. It furnishes him with with everything that is necessary. Scripture is fully orbed, isn't it? We've already seen how it instructs us and how it reproves us and guides us and directs us. It meets our every need. How wonderful is the word of God and how we should treasure it, as we've already said, and love it. But Paul expressly states here that it makes us, it's so that we can be perfect and truly furnished, but he says it's unto all good works. Unto all good works. You see, the word of God is not to just sort of fills the believer's mind with truth and fills his mind with doctrine. God hasn't just spoken so that we might understand him, but the word of God furnishes God's people so that may they do the work of God. You see, it helps us, as we said, to live for his glory. Just let me ask you today, are you someone who is known for their good works? Is that how people know you? I think this is particularly relevant to those in, as it were, the reformed faith. I think this is where we so often fail. We may know so much about the Bible and the truths of the Bible. We may have so much knowledge of the Bible. We may be able to argue about various points of doctrine. But does that word of God impact our everyday lives? Are we kind? Are we loving? Are we supportive? 
Are we those who are zealous of good works, as Paul says later on? Are we like a Dorcas? You remember in Acts chapter 9, there was this lady who made these coats and garments for widows and tells us that she did uh, alms deeds and so on. And in Acts chapter 9, in verse 36, there's this, she's died and, and they're there sorrowing and weeping around her. And how do they describe her? They describe her as one who is full of good works. Full of good works. Let me ask you, when you leave this scene of time, will that be the testimony that, that you leave behind? Will you be a Dorcas? And everyone says, look, here was someone who was known for their good works. I had, uh, when I was at university, I lived with a man who worked in the university. He was a Christian man. And he was a very simple man in one ways. Just an ordinary man who got on with his life and read his Bible and went to church. You might say he had a, read a, read a, just an ordinary life, nothing special. And sadly, he dropped dead at 45 years old. But at his funeral, there was many people who came from the university who worked with him. And, and the one thing they could say about all, all they could say was about his kindness and his love to them and how he would help them and how he would give his time to them. He left behind this wonderful, fragrant testimony of his kindness and of his good works. Friends, is this, is what we, is this what we will leave behind? You remember how we're in, in, told to help the needy and help widows and to love our enemies and we're told to compel, if someone compels us to go one mile, to go two. Do we give to him that asks? Do we give that cup of cold water to a little one? Are we like a Dorcas? Does the word of God, as it were, filter down into our lives and affect the way that we behave with one another? Remember what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now this morning, let's, I think we can say thanks be to God for his precious words. A word that's authoritative, a word that is advantageous to us, a word that's profitable, and a word that accomplishes the equipping and furnishing of those who read it and obey it and who love it and meditate upon it. And may each of us this morning then love and treasure the word of God.